Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I go into the doctor's office, and he's a very short guy, very thick accent. When I'm having this conversation, like, yeah, you know, I can't put any weight on it. I played football. Is it a previous football injury? Yada, yada, yada. And he's looking at me. He's like, well, Mr. Evans, like, I know why you're in pain. And I'm like, all right, lay it on me. What is it? You know already you ain't diagnosed me. You ain't felt on me or nothing. You ain't you even look at my chart. Like, how you know why I'm in pain? And he's like, because you're fat. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, you're fat. <laughs> and he's like, goes on this whole tangent of, you got a pregnant woman's stomach, these titties, and like, you need to start walking, you need to lose weight, you're going to die, and like all these other things. And hearing that brought me back to like some of the stuff that I heard throughout my childhood or just growing up. And I remember just saying sarcastically him, because at this point I've checked out. So I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I remember like, all right, I'm going to run a marathon. He's like, you run a marathon? dude had the most biggest laugh ever like i told a joke i was like you run a marathon like you gonna die like what you mean i'm gonna die like you gonna die like you try it you gonna die hey it's light watkins and we are back with another episode from the end of the tunnel and if this is your first time listening to the show, here is what you are in for. I interview luminaries, artists, philanthropists, athletes, creatives, and basically anyone who has gone above and beyond to be the change that they wish to see in the world. Sometimes they start movements or they create films or they write books that inspire people. And my guest this week is the creator of a platform called 300poundsandrunning.com as well as the Slow AF Run Club. And you can imagine what AF stands for. If not, Google it. Martinez Evans was teased and bullied his entire life for his weight. His brother committed suicide when he was a young boy. Martinez experienced waves of depression. And everything changed when he had this random hip pain As a young adult, he ended up getting heckled by his doctor for being overweight. Martinez was triggered by that conversation, of course, and he used his anger as motivation to run a marathon, which was by far the most challenging thing he he had ever set out to do, but he actually did it. And he was 400 pounds at the time in his first training session on the treadmill. He could only run for about 30 seconds before he got exhausted, but he kept showing back up. And then a year and a half later, he crossed the finish line. Of course, everybody thought he had lost his mind in the beginning, including his family and close friends. And Martinez started sharing his experience of training on a blog, which of course no one read at first, 
But then people began connecting to his transparency and his humor, and his blog started getting traction. And then that evolved into the online community that he created called Slow AF. Martinez has now run several marathons, and his Slow AF community has amassed thousands of members. He travels around the world giving keynotes. He's got a popular running podcast called 300 Pounds and Running. And this was just an overall fascinating and inspiring conversation for me to be able to have. And yet another example of someone who was able to turn their biggest pain point into their purpose. So settle in and get ready for some crazy storytelling as we dive into this incredible backstory of Martinez Evans and find out how his injury led him to his true purpose. Martinez, it is an honor, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Normally, when I'm interviewing someone, it's someone that I know or that I've been introduced to before, and you and I have actually not met before, but I'm a huge fan of your work, of the platform that you've created, and just of everything that you're doing now in terms of body positivity and advocate for wellness and exercise and all that good stuff. But you have a very, very fascinating background. And so we're going to take some time to go into how you became who you are today. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on to At the End of the Tunnel. No problem, man. Thank you for having me. I like to start the conversations off talking about childhood. You grew up in Detroit in the 90s. Thinking back to little Martinez, do you remember any favorite toys or activities that you just really enjoyed or you were obsessed with as a young person? I would say like growing up, man, I was a typical black boy, dreams from the hood, man. Even though I was a fat chubby kid, I wanted to be like Mike. You know, <laughs> so, you know basketball was the thing that I played throughout my childhood or, you know, just I was just street ball. And then the other thing was football. But I didn't have the chance to play like organized football until high school. Yeah, you guys were playing in people's backyards, like three or four different people's backyards, I read. Yes. Backyards, front yards, you know, we used to play getting yelled at. (laughs) Exactly, right. You grew up next to a crack house, or there was a crack house across the street. Yeah. So I'm assuming you grew up in the hood. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was that like? Was it dangerous? Do you have that sort of kid-like immunity to recognizing the danger and just thought that was just how everybody lives or Yes. The thing was I grew up in a house that was working class, right? So my father worked at General Motors, my mother worked for a manufacturer who like made windows for the big three, right? Mm-hmm. So during that time, I thought it just really was normal, right? The drug dealer name was Meech. Meech always looked out for me. You know, he had these pit bulls that was like in the backyard. I was scared as hell of them, but like Meech always was like just looked out for me, right? And yes, I had a, a crack house next door to me, but also I had one across the street. And then it was some like down the street as well. It was just a lot going on in that neighborhood growing up, right? And yes, it was normal or normalized, but I think one of the things that also happened was, you know how people like romanticize like back in the day, like, oh, 
where the hood cats know that you ain't supposed to be here. And they were like, gone, young buck, like right. old school and things of that sort. And I would say like, that's what I experienced. So they were looking out for you then back when you were a kid. Oh, yeah. They looked out for me, man. You know, they, they came and watched us play football at the high school and made sure that we were, I won't say protected, but like that we was looked after because growing up when my mother and father broke up, I remember getting a house key mm-hmm. when I was in the fourth grade. And, you know, that whole conversation of like, all right, well, you got to be the man in the house now. And here's the house key. Don't let nobody in. And being that kid and be like, well, I'm going outside, even though ain't nobody here to watch me. But the drug dealers was there to be like, now, you know, you ain't supposed to be outside this house. (laughs) Don't make me tell your mama act right. Don't get in any trouble. What was the conversation like in the house? You said your whole family worked for the big three. So were there any philosophies or life like ideologies that you remember them echoing to you when you were growing up? Like, you know, you got to work hard or, you know, stay out of trouble or the white man, this or that. Like, what what were they talking about inside of the house? First things first, go to school, get a good job. Like that was the the main thing, right? When, Mm -hmm. oh, there was like, you know, if you get a four year degree, like you can be like a director here at GM, right? Like, those are the dreams. <laughs> that was had. the highest aspiration was yeah. to be a manager at GM. Yeah. Like, you know, you can make about, you no know, $30, $40 an hour. You get you a little four-year degree and come on back and work at GM. So, you know, it was, it was that, right? And then when it was just me and my mom, it was, you know, a whole different conversation of we don't have any money, right? Like we're broke and right. we figure out like ways to, make this work. Before we get to that, I do want to talk about that moment in first grade, because you've been a big person for most of your, even your younger years. And, yeah. uh, and so you had that moment where your teacher called, called everyone up to the front of the class <laughs> and you confessed your love for one of your classmates. Can you share that story? In school, you know, and I don't know why we did this, but like in school, you know, one of the things that you had to do was like a report and f- the first grade was like, write about something that you cared for. While people were going up there with their little piece of paper and, and being like, you know, I care for my cat or I care for my dog or like my mom because she loves me. You know, there was this this pretty girl, you know, I was a lover man from, from the start. Like I was always <laughs> a lover. And I remember going up there and like the, the most proudest and bold is like, oh yeah, like this is going to be my shot and being, you know, like, hey, look, I really like fortune favors the bold, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I remember going up there just really just proud and like head up high and I'm going to claim what's mine type of thing. Like this is me. And I right. get up there and I proclaim my love to this girl in front of everybody in school, like not in school, but in my class. And I say this, like I care for, you know, redacted. And I remember her being like, ew, you can't like me. Your titty's bigger than mine. (laughs) In that instant, the classroom just erupted 
with laughter and was like pointing and being like titty boy, titty boy. And it was like unruly. It was so unruly that other teachers came into the classroom to see what was going on. Cause like, like I said, we in the hood. So the, the kids in the hoods, especially the boys, like it's a time to limit test and assert their power. So when I told her that I liked her and she said what she said, you would have thought that it was like, I don't know, World War II going on in this thing because people just lost their mind. And you became Martinez the Titty Boy after that. Yeah, I did. That was your nickname. Yeah. And you fought a lot. Yeah, I fought a lot, you know, because the thing was like getting in that nickname, people assumed that you were soft. People will try to like disrespect you. Like from that day on, that was the day that I figured out that my size was not normal. Right. I figured out that like me having boy titties or boy breasts at that time was like was a problem. and then. It felt like like everybody else knew at that point, but like this was like the elixir or like the catalyst to like put it out there. Would you wear like three shirts and stuff and to try to cover it up, or what did you do to cope? Oh man, tape. You I put remember tape on yourself. Yes, I remember like just putting tape on myself, like just trying to do anything to cover it up, right and having this, I remember having like this big rash from the tape and it was like, this is bad. And so I just stopped. I stopped, but it was a lot of fights to be had because like boys and girls are like, just grab me. Like, like shut up, Teddy boy. And it's like, like, Oh, this is what we, this is where we're going today. Right. So yeah, it was a lot of fights. It was a lot of being bullied or attempt to be bullied and picked on. And I wasn't for it. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. 
did any of your teachers or any of the so the guidance counselor, anybody like say, hey, Martinez, you know, don't let this get to you. It's not a big deal or anything like that. Anybody step in and try to counsel you or mentor you through this? In the classroom, you know, of course, you know, my teacher tried to console me during that that situation, right? But throughout the years of the of my life, no, no one has ever tried to console, counsel, not even my family. It was just a part of me, and it was like the unspoken thing nobody talked about. So you had that experience, and then your parents broke up when you were in fourth grade, and then your brother, when you were 10 years old, took his life. You walked in and saw the body. Yeah. What was that? Were you guys the only ones that were home at that time, or how were you the first one to see the body? So what happened was, it's a very long story, but I'm going to try to keep it short. Going to school, I wake up early phone rings and it's like my mother on the other end of the line and she's like you know go wake up your dad and like i remember being like well he just pulled the double like you never wake up pop like after pulling the double Mm -hmm. so she yelled at me like go wake him up and we get in the car and we go we get to the house where my brother was staying at the time and like everybody's like still outside the police haven't even came to like put up tape or anything. Like, you know, people was just outside, people was crying and things of that sort. And like my parents just kind of got wrapped up into like everything that was going on with the scene. And like I remember just like getting out the car and just walking into the house and just seeing my brother's lifeless body and blood and like everything just in the in the living room. And then, you know, of course, at that at that point, people, you know, tried to come in and like, oh, no, you don't need to see this and things of that sort. But like, like, I remember just standing there and just looking at it like, dang, it was a scene of like at that age, I think I've already seen maybe one other dead body. So just to see it initially, I didn't really have a the emotion or a reaction to it at all. Right. and. Of course, you know, they pull me out, you know, they're they doing what they have to do. And like me just being a kid. And I think the thing of like just being a kid and just being a fly on a wall of like hearing the stories of like what's going on. Right. It was did someone kill him. And then it's like, no, you know, his fiance came in and she's like telling a story of like like him actually doing that while she was on the phone with him. And I remember like the conversations of my father being like, damn, I don't know how to feel. Like, I wish somebody would have killed him. So at least I can have someone to be angry at. What was your mental state like after going through those different events? And also, what did you envision for yourself in life, right? You have these different points of references. You have Meech, the drug dealer who looks out for you. You have your parents who are pushing you to become a manager at one of the plants and you have your brother who things didn't go well in his life. So what are you thinking about success and where you think you want to go and, and what that looks like during that time? And I would say yeah. a, a very long time afterwards, I didn't think like, I just thought I would be dead or end up being dead just like my brother or brothers. Right. Cause I've had another brother who also died when I was like one or two. 
in the way that you were living, were you living in a kind of a short term, like I'm just going to live for now type of approach or were you, you weren't even thinking long-term? I didn't even think long-term because I, I think after that, it became a domino fall, right? So like my brother died by suicide, somebody else on the block on my block gets killed. And then like maybe a couple years later, like meet the drug dealer who lived next door to me gets killed with me in the backyard of my house, walking towards the front yard. Right. So during that time, it was just a lot of death that I really just thought like, I'm just going to go through these motions. And one of these days is going to be my time and I'm not going to be afraid. football kind of gave you a different hope, new hope, new possibilities. Sort of. So, yeah, I didn't start actually playing football until my junior year of high school, man. Before that, I went there my sophomore year. So after, you know, dealing with all of these deaths, right? Before that, like, I was like, I don't know, 3.0, 4.0 type of student. Grades, pomelit, right? So I went from excelling to just being a quote unquote average student. So I remember, and this makes sense once I I continue to tell the story is that I remember when I wanted to play football my sophomore year and went through all of the tryouts, right. And coach, you know, going through the stuff and it's like, you know, who is this kid? Yada, 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 boy, you big, how old are you? And things of that sort. And where I'm from, you can like train and practice all the way up until the day you get your football pads. And at the day you get your football pads, like the coaches come with like a list of names and like GPAs. So, you know, he's calling names and things of that sort. And then you finally get to my name. And the coach is like Evans. And he embarrassed me. It's like, I think I had like a 2.0. Or, or less than 1.9, like something low twos, high ones. And he's like, you know, damn well, you wouldn't go make it. He said this in front of everybody? Yeah, in front of everybody. It was like, he pretty much shoot me, like, get, get the fuck off my field. Like, come back to me when you got a 2.5 or better. For me, like, of course, it's being embarrassed and like friends that I knew in high school laughed and things of that sort. But I think something in me during that point was like, I might have to prove you wrong then. And then like, I went through the whole semester of, all right, I need to get my grades together just so I can prove this coach that I can like be on the field and I can be worthy enough to even be on the field. So I get the GPA that I need the following year, my junior year, and, you know, get on the team. And I would say I, I shined as an offensive lineman. Meaning that, you know, the first year I was there, I went like honorable mention all city in Detroit, which is like a big thing because, you know, your name going to the newspaper and things of that sort. And like, that's where like scouts to get your name and things of that sort. And going honorable mention all city in Detroit was like a big deal, especially with it being my first year playing organized football. But also the weight thing ended up working out 
to your advantage as an offensive lineman. In fact, you were too little. They told you to gain more weight, right? Yeah. As recruiters started to come and, you know, wanted to court me and, and go through this whole process of playing college collegiate football, I think I was maybe 265, 250 pounds. At that time, it was like huge. That was my junior year. By my senior year, I got up to like 285, 295. And they still was like, boy, you too small. And I remember where some D1 coaches came was like, like, you're just too small altogether. Like, we need you to be 330, 340 plus to like come and play Big Ten football. How did that land with you after being teased almost your whole young life for being big? Did you have some reservations about that? Or were you thinking, I'm just going to do whatever I have to do to get out of this situation that I'm in? I was conflicted because, yeah, I was using football as a way or as a mechanism to slim down and lose weight and people be like, well, we need you to get bigger. And the turning point for me where I was like, oh, I got to do whatever I need to do is when my mother was like, all right, like, you know, you finna graduate high school. Like, I'm going to talk to my supervisor and we're going to get your job here. <laughs> we're going to get your job here at this plant. <laughs> You're not having it. <laughs> we're going to get you this job at this plant. And like, you can start a couple levels higher than like an entry level because I know you. You're, like, you're my son, right? Yeah, you get uh, the hookup. Yeah, they give you the hookup. And I'm like, I don't want to work at this plant. Like, I don't want to do this plant life. And like me having this. I don't say knock, knock out, drag out argument with my mother of like, well, if you want to go to school, you're going to have to figure it out because this is our situation. I ain't got no money saved up for you. Your daddy gone. So you're going to need to figure it out. Mm. And that's when it clicked for me. And that's when I was like, okay, well, I need to do whatever these coaches say I need to do because I need to get the hell up out of Detroit. So how did you land at Lane College? Did they recruit you or how did that work out? Yeah, they recruited me. Scholarship, everything? Yeah, scholarship. I redshirted my first year. I remember Coach Kane flew us out. We got flewed out before it was even a thing. <laughs> it was me and a couple of other students on my football team. Flew us out, did the whole, this is the life as a collegiate football player. And I was like, oh, this is dope. And I was like, all right, like, where do I sign? Like, I'm ready to sign. And so I went there and I hated every single bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> what did you hate about it? A few things, man. Like for it to be a black college and I'm like, all right, like, you know, when people, especially during that time, my sister was excited. It's like, oh, you're going to a black college. You're going to have that black college experience, Greek life, black mm -hmm. folk, talented temp, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, I ended up at Lane College that had, like, 1,200 students. Everybody knew everybody. It was a small school. The dorms was raggedy. Shout out they didn't to show you that during the recruiting trip. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. The food was terrible. It was, like, a complete bait and switch. And then the, the other thing was, like, you know, me finding out that I had the red shirt made it an experience that wasn't enjoyable because 
I always had the notion that I was going to be able to like play mm-hmm. and like train and do all the other stuff as a freshman there. And then to get there and then be like, no, red shirt. So I hated every single bit of it. It was not fun. What conference is, is Lane College in? Are you playing Grambling or Tennessee State or? Yeah, we played Grambling, Tennessee State, but, you know, we also played like some smaller schools, right? Because it was a D2 college. So mm-hmm. I can't remember everything we played or everybody we played, but yeah, we played other black colleges and things of that sort. The thing that were like really angered me is that our home games was, was at a, another high school football. <laughs> okay. So I'm like, we're struggling. I don't want to beat it down so much, but we had like roaches in the dorm. Like, I'm like, I'm, I'm in the projects and I'm in the projects. And I just felt like preyed on to be like, oh, like this is going to be your ticket out of the hood to a better life. Get this education, get this good job. And like, I went from the hood of Detroit to like the, the hood of Jackson, Tennessee, where we had like roaches in the dorms and like stuff was falling apart. When you were at home though, in Detroit, were you pretending like everything was great and you're having this other experience or were you keeping it 100 with everybody? For the people that was excited, like my mother and my sister and like family members. Yeah. I'm telling them like, Oh yeah, this is amazing. Yada, yada, yada. This is like <laughs> my, cousins, my nephews and like other family members that was like behind me like a couple of years behind me that was like, all right, yeah, I'm gonna come to lane with you. And You're I'm like, like, no, 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 don't come to lane. <laughs> don't come to lane. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't come here. Cause I'm trying to get up out of here. And I think for me, the last straw was, you know, the, the football coach quit. So the new coach came in and, you know, I remember getting the call and him being like, so you coming back this year? And it's like, what do you mean? Like I'm off a red shirt. Like I'm ready to do this. And it's like, well, I don't know how you play and you're going to have to retry out again. So I was like, so what does that mean with my scholarship and like things of that sort? And I remember him being like, well, I don't, like I said, I don't know you from time. So you have to try out again. And I remember just being like, do I really want to go back? It's like, so I need to answer Evans. Like, are you coming? I do just like any other black man that, that has avoidance issues. Yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming. You can count on me. I ain't coming. <laughs> so, like, I told him I, I was coming, and I didn't go. Did you drop out of school altogether? Mm-mm. I transferred to Central Michigan University. Before that, like, I actually applied to a bunch of schools, like Wayne State, just a bunch of Detroit schools, Wayne State, Central Michigan, U of M, things of that sort. and. One of my best friends that I grew up with, he went to CMU or Central. And the only reason why he went there, because like his cousin that he adored went there and like played Sigma and things of that sort. So he's like, like, that's his life I want. I want to go to Central. I want to play Sigma just like my cousin. And like, you know, life is going to be good. And I was telling him about my situation. And I, I would say that the, the beauty of red shirting is that I, I was on study hall or study table with tutors and things of that sort. So I left there with like 3.7, 3.8 GPA. So when I transferred to Central, like that was one of the schools that gave me like a, a partial scholarship, a partial academic scholarship. 
I went from a sports scholarship to an academic scholarship. What's funny is I get there and my homeboy is like, yeah, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to put you with everybody in who you need to be with. By the way, I got kicked out because I'm on academic probation. <laughs> is this where you study exercise physiology? Yeah. What were you thinking about that? What were you going to do with an exercise physiology degree? So I really kind of just fell into that degree. So before that, I wanted to do athletic training. So I'm like, mm-hmm. right, I like sports. If I can't be on a field, I'm going to find another way to be on the field. So athletic training sounds like a great thing. So I go there. And one of the things that they don't tell you or, you know, one of the hit, hidden curriculums of going to a mid-tier state school is that they're already competing against two other public Ivies. So, you know, they're competing against U of M. They're competing against MSU. So like they're not the flagship university. So they already got a chip on their shoulder and I get there. And I remember like the counselor being like, you did pretty well at Lane. Like you had 3.8, like you should take like 16 to 18 credits. So I take 16 to 18 credits and it was like the hard stuff, chemistry, biology, anatomy and physiology, like all these things all in one semester. What really tripped me out was like, I had all of these hard sciences courses and like one of the toughest classes at Central that had the highest failure rate, which was anatomy and physiology. They pride themselves on like the amount of people who failed out of that class. And, you know, going through that whole process, I end up getting on academic probation, almost getting kicked out myself. So like falling into like footsteps of my friend. But how did I get from athletic training to exercise physiology is that when you get so deep with all the courses that you've taken, it's almost like you better off finishing the degree than to like, all right, like I'm just going to start fresh. So athletic exercise physiology was like the overflow or like the catch all for all the quote unquote students who couldn't make the cut for athletic training. Because you also described yourself as a walking contradiction, right? You, you weren't moving very much at this point in your college career. And you had a bit of a, is it fair to say you had an eating disorder from the football instructions of eat as much as you can? If it's not bolted down, eat it. Eating disorder, as well as probably some undiagnosed depression, anxiety, you know, all the other things that go along with it. Because yeah, you know, I went from lane where there was like, you are still too light. You need to gain weight and eat everything to being an athlete to like being a regular individual and mm-hmm. still dealing with things that I haven't really addressed. The reason why, like I left Lane, right? To some family members during that time, right? Yeah, I played it off, like played it down. Like, yeah, it wasn't my thing, yada, yada, yada. But like telling the truth, like the coach quit. The new coach want me to try out. I really don't like it there. And like, I don't know what else I'm going to do. So I'm just going to go to the school where my homeboys is at. Was Men's Warehouse a part-time job or was that your full-time gig after college? How did you land there? So graduate central, my wife, whose girlfriend at the time was like, hey, we're going to go to UConn. So she goes to UConn for grad school, University of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. 
And then during that time, I was working at a maximum security juvenile facility. And she was like, you know, so are you coming with? I think we was maybe about three years into our relationship. And she's like, well, are you coming with? Yeah, we've been in together for three years, but now it's the time. Like, if we can like break it off, we can break it off. We can be friends, or like you come with, and like we can see where this goes. And I came with. I was like, shit, I'm working at this maximum security juvenile facility. I'm already like I'm in jail for eight to fifteen hours. Hell yeah, I'm coming. Why didn't you work at one of the plants? I mean, you had the hookup. Why work at the jail? (laughs) Because. And just from principal, you were going to go there? I'm not going there. But also, like, yeah, I remember I graduated undergrad 2009. So, like, that was, like, the bubbling of, like, the collapse of the economy. The economy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, it was right in the midst of that. So, Ford, GM, and Chrysler, I don't know if you remember, like, but they went bankrupt. That's right. And Barack Obama saved them. Yeah. So a lot of my family and friends that was making 30-ish, 40-ish dollars an hour were just a a high school diploma. Like, their union was like, oh, we got to cut this in half. Mm. Or they was given, like, the buyouts of, like, all right, say you got 10 years left to retirement. We're going to give you $5,000 per year and send you on your way. So it was a lot of things going on. And I was like, I can't get this degree. I'm not about to be working painstaking physical labor for like $16, $17 an hour. I was getting that in undergrad, like just as a TA or like working at an arcade. The maximum juvenile facility was like the place that gave me the most money at the time, like coming straight out of undergrad. So that's why I worked there. And why did you choose men's warehouse? You're 400 pounds or you don't know how much you weigh at this point because the scale only goes up to 350 and that's you're selling suits. Like, how did I get there? So, yeah, moved to Connecticut, have no job. My girl is going to grad school like she's doing the grad school stuff. Like, that's a whole different thing. Like, not understanding what that means. Like, I'm thinking this is like regular undergrad. So we stay in this area where we're walking distance from like like a, a strip mall, a mall and things of that sort. So I remember I was there for about two months there and I'm applying, not getting callbacks, like not getting jobs or nothing. And I remember being like, fuck it. Like I'm going to go like boots the ground and like pass out this resume that I didn't bought this resume paper with my last couple bucks, printed it out. And like, I'm going to go and like shake some people's hands and the men's warehouse is in this center. I think it was called like Buckland Hills, right? So I'm literally like going to each store. I mean, there's a Target there. There's a vitamin shop. I think there was like a vacuum cleaner, like sales type of thing, like an auric. And then like there's this men's warehouse. So I'm literally going to each of the stores and then I go into men's warehouse. So I got my like oversized suit that really don't fit me well that I got from, you know, like... I don't know, a family friend or whatever. And I literally just go in there and like, hey, like I'm Martinez. I'm new here. Like, I'm just trying to like get a job. Here's my resume. And, you know, they was like, well, you know, we really don't have anything. It's like, all right, cool. Like, but if you do, like, please let me know because I'm hungry and I want to work. And I got a call back that day. The store manager was like, hey, like I heard nothing but good things about you. Come in. Let me interview. 
I interviewed, blew out the interview. And it's like, well, we really don't have any spots available, but we can work something out. So I started part-time there and went from part-time to a full-time position within a couple months. And Is it commission? Yeah. Part commission, part salary. So it's like seven, eight dollars an hour, and then ten percent on everything you sell. You know, that was like for people who started off because what they really didn't want is like if you go straight commission that you don't sell anything and at least you know you don't have no check. So they usually start you off around there like eight dollars an hour, ten percent commission, and then eventually you work up to like fifteen, twenty percent. So you obviously weren't passionate about this is not your life calling working at men's warehouse. So how did that work for you? Were you good at it? It was fun because, you know, the thing is, like, I'm a hustler, man. So I'm, I, can sell, <laughs> <laughs> I can sell ice in the wintertime. So me slanging suits ain't nothing. I was slanging those suits, man. Shout out to Meech. I was out there. <laughs> but I wasn't passionate about it. But w- what it gave me was for me to hone in on my people skills. Because literally, I have to talk to people every day, day in and day out. And, you know, they come in here. What do you need? trying to figure out what do they need within 90 seconds so I can tell the people who support me, like, oh, this dude has a funeral, or oh, this dude has got a new job, or oh, this dude is just just looking, like, let's put some styles together, right? Because it's usually like a, it's like a team sport. I don't know how it is now, but it was usually like a team sport. So you have like a salesperson, and then you have like a assistant to like the salesperson who will like put together your looks and things of that sort. So you're like, hey, dude is going to a funeral the assistant to go grab like a bunch of shirts and ties and like you know put the tie on there and things of that sort so once you got a suit you can lay it down and say all right well these are your options for your funeral and usually in that five minutes that you're like trying on suits you're asking questions you're trying to get the most information you can get out this person so you can then like relay it to the person so they can like use it against them like you know well you know like sorry about your brother I heard that, you know, your, your brother's favorite color is red. So what we did was that with this gray suit, and let me tell you about this gray suit, this gray suit is versatile because you can wear it to this funeral, but you can also put a pink shirt on in this bad boy and wear it to a funeral. But since you said your brother's favorite color is red, we put together a couple options of like this red shirt and this black tie or like this black tie or like this white shirt with this red tie or like a pocket square. So you can, you know, be able to celebrate your brother during this time. You go through that, you give the spiel and like you shut up and it's like, all right, so what are you taking? So it, it was like that type of process of understanding like what sales meant, like hand to hand type of combat type of thing of what do you do for a living? What do you enjoy? What are what are some things that you, you know, you're going to do? Are you going to wear the suit more often? What else are you doing? Like what else is going on? Yada, yada, yada. Just so I can use that information to try to sell them additional stuff. Did you become like the alpha of the men's warehouse sales team? Were you the top guy or one of the top guys? I was one of the top. Like men's warehouse at the time had something called like Founders Club when, you know, you sell over like $500,000 worth of material. Like they could put your name on this plaque. And uh, for a few years, I got very close to making it. I was like maybe ten or $20,000 short one year. But yeah, it was fun. Even though it wasn't my passion. It was fun because you you get to meet interesting individuals, right? Like I remember one guy who was like one of my regulars. He'll just kick tires because he's like bored. You know, he might buy a pair of jeans. And I remember he hit the lottery one day 
and he came in. It's like, I'm going to spend this with you. And I'm like, yes, because my week was looking a little low. <laughs> He's like, man, I just hit the lottery for a million dollars. Man, wow. I, I want a whole new wardrobe. And you were his guy. Yes. End up leaving the store like $5,000 worth of new gear. And I'm like, yes. Because you would indulge him when he would come in and kick, knowing he wasn't going to buy anything. You would you would be there for him as if he was going to buy something. Yeah. So it paid off. Yeah. I met a car salesman there. We had a great relationship. He sold me a car. I sold him a suit. Like some of the coaches from UConn basketball team would come there. So it was just like interesting people. You'll just meet selling these suits to people. Right. And it really didn't mean anything to me, but I, I got a lot out of it because it was like just meeting folks, especially I'm in Connecticut. So it's people from insurance. You got people who go back and forth to New York or people who like work in Wall Street, but like are visiting family because they got family in, in Connecticut and things of that sort. So I met a variety of people there that helped me become like the the personal person that people like and enjoy because I spent a lot of time just talking to a bunch of people trying to get information from them so I can sell them a suit. Well, it's interesting too, because you're good at it and you understand the culture, you learn the system, you learn how to do the skill very well. And, and so it turns into this kind of safe job that you have some sense of security in. And this is, I think a lot of people find themselves in this situation where it may not be their calling or their passion, but they're really good at something. And so they're really reluctant to move away from that because they get that steady paycheck and, you know, why rock the boat if you know, or why fix it if it's not broken type of mentality. But obviously the universe had different plans for you because you came in one day and felt the sharp pain. Yeah. And that's the thing, man. Like I came in and I felt the sharp pain in my hip and I couldn't even put any weight on my foot. Like I couldn't put weight on my hip. And that was crazy. And I remember like talking to one of the managers, like, yo, I got to get up out of here. So I leave the next day. I was supposed to work. I think I was working like a seven day sprint. and come back still pain. And I remember him being like, don't come back until like you feel better until your hip is all right, because like you're useless on the sales floor if you can't stand up. So yeah, like I went to the doctor and got x-rays and then- Did you have insurance or how did you how did you find this doctor? Yeah, I had insurance. I mean, you got to have them benefits, man, you know? Right. But this is somebody you didn't know before. This doctor was just some guy of a list. Just, yeah, from a list. Okay. And that this was is the funniest part of the whole story, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I had insurance, you know, black folk have insurance, but don't even use it. I didn't even use it to go see not one doctor in that time span. Mm-hmm. They have the insurance, but go to the doctor that led me to another doctor, which led me to the doctor who pretty much changed my life. And mm-hmm. I go into the, the doctor's office and he's a very short guy, you know, very thick accent. And, you know, and I'm having this conversation like, yeah, you know, I can't put any weight on it. Like I play football. Is it a previous football injury? Yada, yada, yada. And he's like looking at me. He's like, well, Mr. Evans, like, I know why you're in pain. And I'm like, all right, like lay it on me. 
what is it? Like, you know, already you ain't diagnosed me. You ain't felt on me or nothing. You ain't even look at my chart. Like, how you know why I'm in pain? And he's like, because you're fat. Like, what? <laughs> like, you're fat. <laughs> and he like goes on this whole tangent of you got a pregnant woman's stomach, these titties, and like you need to start walking, you need to lose weight, you're gonna die, and like all these other things. And like hearing that brought me back to like some of the stuff that I heard throughout my childhood or just growing up. And I remember just saying sarcastically him, because I'm like, at this point, I've checked out. So I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I remember like, all right, like, yeah, I'm going I'm to run a marathon. Like, I'm going to run a marathon. It's like, you run a marathon? Dude had the most biggest laugh ever. Like, I told a joke. It was like, you run a marathon, like, you going to die. And like, what you mean I'm going to die? Like, you going to die. Like, you try it, you going to die. And I remember, like, we just kept having this argument because I'll just say something snarky. And he'll say something snarky back. Or it's like, I'll say something that's like, you just going to die to the point. It's like, well, I'm gonna get the hell up out of here. So I just leave, like storm out the doctor's office because we was almost like coming blows. Like, I remember talking to him with like my fist balled up and I was like, oh, I need to get up out of here. So leave the doctor's office and I'm driving home and like, I'm still ruminating on this conversation. Like, who the fuck does a doctor tell me I'm gonna die if I run a marathon? Like, Should I run a marathon a day? And then, like, as I said, that I'm driving past a Fleet Feet, which is a running shoe store. And, like, I made a U-turn and went in a running shoe store. I was like, I need running shoes now. And I remember it's like, them like, being like, oh, okay, what, what are you doing? You're going to run a 5K or something? And I'm like, me being like, fuck no, I'm going to run a marathon running today. <laughs> it's like, you got a race or something? It's like, no, I'm running that bad boy today on a treadmill. Give me my shoes. And then, you know, go through the whole process. I get the shoes. I go to the, the treadmill in my apartment complex. And there's these two guys on either side of me, like running on a treadmill. And like they're running fast. So I'm like, oh, okay, like I can do this shit too. So I look at the one guy, his treadmill speed is like at 10. I look at the other person, they're like nine or eight or something like that. And I, I think I turned mine to seven. I was like, I'm getting it in get on the treadmill and like my body just felt like it was rejecting the treadmill and I'm breathing hard. I'm breathing heavy. I don't know if I'm running too fast. I don't know if I'm running too slow. And one of the things that happened was like, I remember reaching out to like turn the, the button off and like I pulled back, like I hesitated, like, nah, like I need to run this, this marathon today. And then as soon as I hesitated, my feet left the treadmill and my shoulder hit the belt, man. Mm. Made this big ass noise. So like everybody's looking at me and I'm like getting up as fast as I can, like just hoping like nobody addresses me. And like one of the guys that was next to me was like, hey, bro, you all right? And I'm like, yeah, I just lost my balance. Like grab everything and like just get out the, the fitness center. And as I was going home, I reached out to the doorknob and I had this tattoo on my right wrist that says no struggle, no progress. And as I was like reaching to the handle and like it came out and I was like, this got to change. Like I got to make it a change. He not going to beat me. I'm going to have to prove some people wrong. And that was the start, man. That was the start of the journey. 
I went back out there the next day and ran 30 seconds, went out there the night of the day, ran a minute. And then I just kind of like just build on it. Like each day I'll just double like what I was doing until somebody was like, Hey man, you need to download couch to 5k. And I download, I don't know, five, six of them. And I, I just pick one and I started to do couch to 5k. It was hard. Like I remember, remember repeating a bunch of days because no matter which one I did, I, I just felt like, like my body was like not adjusting to the, the treadmill or just running in general. So I remember just repeating a lot of days in couch to 5k until I was able to like complete it. So like, let's say week five, day one, like you run, I don't know, 10 minutes straight. I'm just making up something like, say you got to run 10 minutes straight. And I'm like, I can't run no damn 10 minutes straight. So like, I'll just keep repeating that day over and over and over until I was able to run for 10 minutes straight. And then I'll go to the next day. And like, sometimes it'll take me a week. Sometimes it'll take me like two weeks until I was able to like complete whatever that day was in order to feel like I'm able to move on. What about your heel? I mean, your heel was in pain. Did that go away or did you just tolerate the pain or how did that work out? During that process, I did end up going to physical therapy. The first couple of runs, I still was in pain. That first run, I was in pain. I probably shouldn't did it. And it you know, it was my wife like, maybe you should, need, you should probably go to physical therapy and be, be like, yeah, you know what? I probably should. And I remember just walking in physical therapy one day and be like, hey, my hip hurts here. And like pointing to it. And it's like, you got insurance? And I was like, yep. And it's like, all right, let's work. I don't know what would happen if I didn't have insurance, but luckily I did. And during that whole process of me running on a treadmill and like completing these days, like I'll go to physical therapy and say, hey, I ran for this long. This is where it hurts at. How can we get this fixed? And, you know, after a while, I don't know, maybe three months to six months, it eventually the pain ended up easing up. But yeah, during that whole time where I was initially running or starting to run, I was going to physical therapy. And the blog, 300 pounds and running, was that sort of like accountability for you? Like, did that help you stay committed or were you going to stay committed anyway? And you just wanted to share your experience. I'm going to tell you the truth. I started the blog because I felt like that's what people was doing during that time. I was like, you know what? I remember talking to my partner and be like, hey, like I think I'm going to start a blog with this. I think this is what people do. They go on a journey and then they, they write about it and people watch it and like read it. <laughs> like, what's a blog? And I'm like, a website that people puts things on and like tell a story. And it's like, okay. That's what I did. Like I started the blog and you know, I wasn't looking for like anybody to read it or anything like that, because like it was just something I thought that's what people did. People start a journey and then they write about it on the Internet and you become one of the cool kids. I don't know. Like I did start that blog and initially like nobody was reading it. It was just my me, <laughs> my significant other, maybe my sister, my mom and a couple of friends. And then. People started telling other people like, hey, Martinez got this blog here. You know, he trying to run this marathon and lose weight. Like, you should read it because it's interesting. Some of the things he say is funny. And like people just 
started to read it, right? And I remember going to this conference. There was this conference called Fit Blogging, where like a bunch of fitness people and like fitness bloggers got together and like met up and just kicked it. And I remember going there and being so nervous, yo. Cause I was like, all right, like I only lost like 10 pounds. Like I was like new into the journey, but like met a bunch of like lifelong friends from that conference just to be like, Hey, I'm Martinez. I'm trying to run this marathon. I'll write this blog. Y'all should read it type thing. And like met a bunch of people who like supported me and celebrated and like cheered me on people who were still cheering me on. And it took you what a year and a half to do the marathon, the yeah. Detroit marathon. Yeah, it was no joke. Did you have a lot of people thinking you wouldn't be able to pull it off in your yeah. life? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, man. A lot of family members, a lot of friends, like, what you doing is crazy. And like some of them just said, like, oh, you're going to pass out. Like, I remember the first time I told my mother and my mother is a little older. <laughs> he being like, oh, I need to go run. Or like coming home for Thanksgiving and being like, all right, like, I need to go run. Mom. She's like, oh, like, how far are you running? And me being like 16 miles, 16 miles. Oh, boy, you're going to pass out. What do you mean you're running 16 miles? And then like having to like explain it and tell her the story like, yeah, you know, Dr. called me fat. I'm trying to train for this marathon. And how long is a marathon? 26.26 miles. What? How long is it to take you? I don't know. Six, seven hours. You saying you're going to run 26 miles in seven hours? Boy. You're crazy. You ain't doing that, man. That's some white people shit. You better go on with that. He's <laughs> greens. Dress them. So like that was a lot of people response when I was training for that first marathon, especially people of color. My my family members like what you run? Like how long was the marathon? And going through that whole experience, it was it was like another thing to like add fuel to the fire. Like oh, I need to do this because like they don't understand how big this is. Or even this, I remember like telling them like the story of the marathon, right? Or like the legend, like, you know, there's this war, this the war, the marathon, like the guy runs to like tell the news and like gets there and he dies. And it's like, you want to run something that the first time the first guy died. Did it, dies? <laughs> <laughs> like, That's a good point though. <laughs> I mean, if you don't know anything about marathons and that's the story you hear to kind of sell you on it, that's like the guy died. Okay. Yeah. And me be like, right. oh, like, got it. Cool. Like, people do this. Like, I'm going to do this. And it's like, you're going to die just like that first. <laughs> Hearing up to this part of the story, you ran the marathon, right? You crossed the finish line. It's a glorious moment, at least personally, as an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. The story could really end there, right? Like, that's where the credits could start rolling. Yeah, Because now you've created this new obsession with this activity that's obviously going to benefit your life in, in, in all the right ways. But cut to your later tragedy strikes again. I mean, you st you either stay embarrassed or you're in some kind of <laughs> physical <laughs> dilemma. <laughs> that's my life. January 2014, the marathon was October 2013. Literally months later. I get in a fucking car accident, man. 
I get in a car accident, totaled my car, hurt myself bad. Like, what damn. happened? Were you distracted or? Mm-mm. I was actually driving back to school. And what happened was there was a lot of traffic and there was a school bus on the left side of me. And there was a little bit of head, but like the light was red. So the school bus waved like this mail truck over. And I was coming down the street. And as I was driving, the light turned green. So I accelerated. So as I accelerated, the school bus had waved the, the mail truck over and I T-boned the mail truck. Wow. Was the guy okay or the woman okay? Yeah, yeah the person was okay. okay. But you're out of commission. You can't run. You can't do anything. Can't do nothing. For at least seven to eight months, man. Down bad. You know, gained back all the way that I have lost during that time. You know, I get depressed, get suicidal. I get all of that stuff, man. Because that thing that I've been doing or like working on for like the past 18 months, almost like the past two years now, was like just taken away from me quickly. Like in a moment that I didn't even have any control over. It took me about, I don't know, seven or eight months to get healed from that and then get into another car accident. Fucking car rear ends me on the freeway. So I get hurt again. So I was out for another six, seven months. And then after that, come back to it, started to feel good. And then I injure myself running. <laughs> so it was like this hard, like good year and a half where car accident, car accident, hurt myself. And I remember being like, like something got to change. But like, this is the thing that I want to do. Like, I remember in New England when the fall hit, you know, the colors change and the leaves are falling and things of that sort. And like. I remember driving and like people were just like, it was like a very scenic day. Like the leads are changing colors, people are running, you know, enjoying themselves. And I remember being like, man, I want that. And I'll do that. Like, regardless, like what my situation is, like, if I'm able to run again, I don't care like what weight I'm at. Like I'm going to run. I'm not going to worry about weight loss. Like I'm just going to, do what I got to do to enjoy running because I really do enjoy it. I like the person I was when I was running and training and things of that sort. And like, that was the, the promise that I made to myself. So last I checked men's warehouse doesn't have medical leave. So what were you doing for money while you were sitting around <laughs> on the couch for months at a time recovering? I was also in grad school during that time too. So like, okay. After men's warehouse, I went to grad school, had a TA ship. So I just did that. I became like a full-time student in grad school during that time. This is where you were working in the weight loss lab? Yeah. What was going on there? I mean, like you said, you're a walking contradiction. So you're working in a weight loss lab. You're 400 pounds. And you said uh, when your colleagues like pulled you up one day, it's like, is everything okay? Like, what, um, how are you reconciling all of that? It was tough during that time because you got to remember, so... Let's clear it up. You have men's warehouse. I get injured. Mm-hmm. I started running during that time. I get into grad school. So I'm working at grad school. I've, I've lost that weight. So like they reap the benefits of like, oh, Martinez has lost close to 100 pounds. Yada, yada, yada. And then get into a car accident 
gained all that weight back. And that's when they're like, yo, are you okay? Like, what's going on? Fucking depressed, man. What you expect? Were you straight up with them like that? Did you say, I'm, I'm just... <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I just try to play it down like, yeah, you know, I'm just going through some things. You know, I really haven't been able to bounce back from a car accident, like things of that sort. So you're working in this weight loss lab. Mm-hmm. You're 400 pounds or somewhere around there. Was there anything you were learning about weight loss from working in the lab that was applicable to your personal situation? Yes and no. So, yeah, I was able to get some of these trainings to, you know, become a certified diabetic type of teacher, some of the other behavior change models, or just even learning that, right? Like there's a model to behavior change and me being like, oh, crap, there's a model to this. Like scientifically, I would say like those are some of the things that stuck with me, but like the actual thing of, oh, this is how you're going to lose weight. I would say the main thing that really just stuck with me was journaling or keeping a log and being very honest about your struggles throughout that journey of trying to lose weight. Like those are the things I really learned. And then the main, main thing I learned is that A, there's no difference between any other diet scientifically. Like Mm -hmm. if you line up all the diets together, there's no difference in the amount of weight change that happens between any of the diets. I remember when, you know, that paper came out and being like, oh, this is when paleo was big. This is when people like, oh, I'm going to go on this diet and yada, yada, yada. And to have that scientific article and be like, none of this shit really matters. <laughs> like you, you are following something and you are hating it. And guess what? You don't have to do it because when you compare apples to apples to any other quote unquote diet or popular diet, there's no significant change in the amount of weight. During that time, I'm also going through that notion of like, oh, like I want to run and I want to run like regardless of what weight I'm at, that I had that knowledge to be like, oh, this is all a scheme that the man set up and able to make money, you know, from these people. And like me going back to my exercise science days and my other days in in grad school to be like, well, there's so many other benefits to exercise. Why are we using exercise as this punishment for weight loss? Like, Mm -hmm. why are we just not using exercise as like the overall elixir for better health? That's where a combination of those type of things was happening because I had the knowledge myself, right? I had the exercise science degree. I ran this race. Of course, I lost weight and I gained it back. But when you look at the data of like, there's so many other benefits that come from just exercise that I was like, well, why am I even boxing myself in to be the specific weight to please the other people around me? And if I'm happy of what I'm doing, just do more of that and like not focus on this scale. Cause like it was a lot of pressure, right? Like I'm getting on the scale, I'm blogging about it. And I remember this thing. I used to have this thing called weigh in Wednesday. So like I used to get on the scale and like weigh myself every Wednesday. And like, as I was like gaining this weight and all this other stuff, I'm like, like, why am I still doing this? Like, why am I putting myself through this in order to appease this model or thing that I think people want from me? 
And of course, like some people left and I was like, yo, I'm not really focused on weight loss anymore. I'm just trying to like run marathons and like really enjoy running and being in my body. And like, this is before I even knew the term body positivity or like self-acceptance and things of that sort. I remember just saying like, yo, I'm just trying to enjoy the person that I am. And I really like Martinez when Martinez is active, like regardless if like he's losing weight, is he's gaining weight or, re- or whatever. Like, I just enjoy myself better when I'm active. That's where some of the clicking of some of the things of like models that I thought of, or like, you know, this is not a weight loss journey. And me just being like, you know, you can be active for the sake of being active and not have to do it for weight. And I know that's hard for people because when we think about like exercising and things of that sort, the main thing you, you know, associate that with it is weight. Like, oh, like, oh, you're going for a run? Like, oh, you're trying to get that weight off you, huh? Or you're doing some sit-ups? Oh, boy, you're trying to get them abs, huh? Or you're doing squats? Okay. I see you trying to get them legs. But it's not like, yo, yeah, I'm running because I want better cardiovascular health. Like, I'm running because I enjoy running races and, like, doing something hard and completing it. Or, like, people seeing me and thinking, oh, this is his first time, like you'll be okay and trying to give me acknowledgement or like trying to give me encouragement. And then I pass them on the race. Like, mm. like those are the things that like bring me the most joy when it comes to like being physically active. start running again after your accidents and you know you heal yourself and now you're becoming more and more proficient just as someone who knows they can finish a race like Mm -hmm. what are you thinking about success is it about health at this point is it about making money is it about starting your own thing or what were you thinking no at that time truthfully it was about running as many races as i can (laughs) (laughs) like that's literally what i was trying to do is run as many races as i can any race that i signed up for or could afford i did it so you were working to run races, basically. Yeah. yeah. Because like that was the fun thing to be able to see my friends, to be able to meet other people and have conversations with complete strangers about running. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever ran a race before, but like there's this thing of like it's the last stretch and you just look around and you see like who are you with? Mm-hmm. And you look at that guy, you give him the head now, like you gonna we're gonna run this in together. It's like, yeah, we're going to run this in together. And like, y'all just run it in together. And like, y'all give each other a big high five or a hug. And like, good job. Like, you did that shit. Speaking of that, I didn't realize that this was happening until I read into your story. Talk about some of the fucked up things that happen to people who run really slow at the end of the races. <laughs> oh, man. Where do you want to start at? We can start in Berlin. <laughs> the race you trained for 152 days for. <laughs> Dang, man. <laughs> I forgot I trained for that long. <laughs> yeah. The thing about Berlin is a part of the world majors or the Abbott World Marathon Majors or something like that. Google it. It's one of those things. It's Abbott, it's Marathon Majors, and it's six of them. So the six are New York City, Boston, Chicago, Tokyo, London, Berlin. Big thing 30, 40,000 people come to these races a year. And like they're so competitive to get in that you have to put your name into this lottery. And then like they select you and it becomes like this big thing on social media day of like, 
like I got into the lottery this year. I got into Berlin marathon, like through the lottery. I was like, Oh shit. Like I've never been to Berlin. I'm like, I'm on cloud line. I'm going to train for this thing because I'm going to enjoy this thing. And then like some of my other friends are also going. So it, it becomes this thing of like, Oh, like we're going to travel. We're going to go travel. We're going to be buddies. We're going to run this race. We're going to have a good time. So 152 days of like training in the summer. That's the thing people don't tell you. Most race seasons happen in the fall or in the spring, which means either you're running through the dog days of summer or you're running through the wintertime. Berlin happens in October. So I'm running through the summertime. Hot. Imagine running 18 miles on an 80 degree day. Not fun. So I train for this thing. Get to Berlin, like have the best time of my life there. Like I'm having a ball in Berlin. The race come in. It's a weird day for me. What I mean weird is that the Airbnb I was at, I ran to the start line and like, it was, I don't know, mile, mile away. It's okay. Like I I can do this. I ran, like I'm running for this marathon, run there. And like, I get to the start line and I'm soaked. I'm like, it's humid and I am soaked anyway, still trying to shake it off. Like, all right, like it's going to be okay. I'm here. I'm going to drink some water. The gun goes off and we run. And then it rains and then it stopped raining and then it gets breezy. So it gets cold. And like you're going through this whole experience of like, all right, am I going to quit? Like, no, you can't quit. This is Berlin. You didn't spent all this money. You didn't came all the way over here. You can't quit. Like you can't give it up. Get to the finish line. So during that time, like, yeah, people are starting to slow down because of the rain, the weather, things of that sort. Like I'm running in like soaked shoes. Every step I'm taking it, you hear a squeak, you hear a squeak from like the rubber and the cushion squeaking as it compressed. So as I'm progressing through it and I, I noticed that I'm, you know, getting a little bit behind, but I'm talking to some of the volunteers like, hey, like y'all going to let me finish. Like, are we OK? And it's like, no, 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 you're OK. You're good to go. And uh, get to the finish line or like get to the Brandenburg gate. So to get to the finish line, you got to run through this, you know, the Brandenburg gates. So I'm running and I see a bunch of people there. I was like, all right, good. Like I'm golden. Like I'm across this finish line. I'm going to get this medal, get to the gate, like get past the gate. And like, there's these other gates that's up. And like, I'm talking to the guy and he's like, no, 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 you have to go this way. And it's like, no, like I'm running the race. Like I have this bib on, like. I'm running away. So like, I need to finish. And he's like, no, no, no. Like, you have to go to the exit. And it's like, no, like, I need to cross the finish line. He's like, no, no, no. So, like, we're going back and forth. And then, like, nah, nah. there's other people there. It's like, no, like, we need to cross the finish line. We're running the race still. And it's like, the race is over. The race is over. And it's like, the race can't be over. Like, because I'm still here. <laughs> what do you mean the race is over? I'm in the race. The race is not over. <laughs> exactly. Like the race is not over because I'm here. Right. I need to cross this finish line. So he would not let us cross this finish line. He had these gates and like you go through the exit and I'm like, all right, you got to go through the exit. And I'm like, all right, well, I need to cross this finish line. And in my head, like it, it didn't even click to me like, oh, like this is over. So I'm like, I need to cross this finish line. So I go through the exit. I run through it. And like, to get back to the finish line was maybe another mile. So about the time I got there, when I was there with a the guy arguing, the lights were still on and everything like that. 
I get back to the finish line after going an extra mile and going around and things of that sort, the lights are off, people packing up shit, all this stuff. And I just broke down, man. I break down because it's like I trained for this long. Like I made an intentional effort to train for this race, to be like, this is the race that I'm going to conquer. This is the race that I'm going to do. And to like run the whole race in the rain, it rained multiple times, like downpours in the rain. I was prepared, had a poncho, like to do all these things and to get there and not be able to cross the finish line. It's like the hardest feeling ever. It hurt me so bad. And, and that's then, the thing. They run out of water sometimes. They run out of cups. They turn the tables over. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody hands me a medal and it's a fucking uh, inline skating medal. It's not even a marathon medal. It's like, good job, buddy. Good job. It hands me an inline skating medal. And I just lose it. Like, like why am I doing any of this? Like, this is dumb. And this is me going through emotions. And I, eventually I get a marathon medal, but I have two medals from Berlin because like this felt just like not looked after and not cared for because I'm a slower runner. And this happens to a lot of people, right? You know, you mentioned before, they flip over tables of water. They pull up the signs. Like I've had people, even myself, like run a race and get lost on the course because they've taken up the arrows to let you know, like where you need to be at, especially when you're in an intersection. So imagine being at a four-way intersection and like, it's only you and maybe somebody else behind you. And you're at this intersection. Nobody's there in front of you. There's no volunteers. And you're like, where do I go? And it's like, you just taking a bet, like, all right, do I keep straight? But what if that intersection is supposed to make a right or left? And like, you just get off track. They run out of water. They run out of metals. And I think this is very interesting because this is something that I write about and I wrote about, you know, I wrote an article called the open letter to race directors from the back of the pack. And like, you can see like from the responses of mixed bags of like, you have people who's like, yes. I've been through this and this is why I don't run races anymore. And then you have other people who like these elitist assholes. That's like, that's on you lose weight, get faster. And it's like, but I paid the same amount of money you did. <laughs> I paid the same amount of money you did. I probably trained longer. Like I trained for 152 days for this thing. And your response to me is to lose weight and get faster. Like, what type of justice and fairness is that? But yeah, man, it's one of the things that I fight for now to, like, use my voice and my following to be like, hey, racist, like, people, we pay our green money to do the same thing that somebody else does. And at least y'all can do is give us the same amount of treatment or at least make things black and white in order for us to know the rules. Because here's the thing with races, right, is that it's a lot of gray area, right? Like they may tell you, oh, the race cutoff is seven hours, but seven hours from what? Seven hours from when a person start? Seven hours from when the last person start? Seven hours when, right? And then whatever it is, they don't follow it. Because it's been times where I've been on pace to the T. You know, a race might be a seven hour cutoff. I run the race and I finish the race in six hours and 45 minutes. But throughout the second half of the race, there's no water. 
I'm asking police officers, hey, officer, which way do I go? Luckily for me, I have my phone or I have the actual course map. So I got to literally stop at the intersection, trace my finger around the, the course and be like, all right, I'm at this intersection. I need to turn right. I do all of these things in order to cross the finish line as a giant fuck you to like the people who forgotten about us, but also for the other people to be like, yo, this experience doesn't make you less than an athlete and make you more than an athlete because you have to go through all of these adversities to get to this finish line. You got to train harder. And it's the thing of like being black, right? You got to be twice as good, three times as good to get the same effect. And I think that's just one of the things that I'm telling to the people who follow me and the people who are also out there to say like, this makes you more of an athlete because you went through all of these things. You went the extra mile also, and you created this community called Slow as Fuck Running to Slow AF Running Club, Mm -hmm. right? Was that what you were thinking when you created that community? Like, these are people who are all having the same experience that I'm having, and I want to let them know that there's nothing wrong with them. And I want to, you know, offer whatever wisdom or training advice I can and hold people accountable. Absolutely. That, as well as knowing that our power is within numbers. My initial goal with this is to gather as many slow runners in this thing as possible to then rewrite the open letter to the race directors and like go to races and be like, hey, we are the Slow F Run Club, a community of 100,000 people. And like, these are our demands. And if you don't provide these demands, we will not support you. That was my initial thought with it. And then as people started to come in and, you know, hearing their stories, yeah, it became more about, all right, how do I provide a psychological safety for new individuals who want to start running? So running, you know, lower that barrier running. B, how do I provide a safe space to all the slow runners that's out there? Because you go on Facebook groups and if they're only thing they're talking about is losing weight and get faster, that's not necessarily a safe space. And the last thing is to provide accountability to say, hey, if you want to run a race, let's run it together. Or, hey, you want to run a race? Maybe you'll be able to find somebody inside this community that's in your uh, local location. and Y'all can run it together. As I kind of teased you earlier, the you finishing the Detroit Marathon in a conventional story would have been the end of the movie. I would say that you deciding to take a topless selfie and post it on Instagram would be a better end to the movie. <laughs> and that's exactly what you did, man. You you came full circle. Can you talk about what inspired that and how that worked out for you? Being the person I've been, I've been a person who've had boy boobs, man boobs for like all of my life, right? I've been this person who's been through all these adversities, people telling me I'm fat, people telling me I'm going to die, you know, even from, you know, the first grade of like the girl being like, you can't like me because your titties is bigger than mine. Being a, a plus size individual and being a black man is one of the things of like being soft is like the worst thing you can be. Being vulnerable is the worst thing that you can be or do, right? Showing that you have feelings and emotions, the worst thing ever. And I remember having a conversation with a friend. And I remember asking him, like, you know, what would you do if you wasn't afraid? What would you do if you wasn't afraid? And he's like, man, 
I would go to a pool with no shirt on. I would just get in the pool and just be topless. And I was like, huh? And I was saying to myself, like, out of all this stuff, like, my guy here is afraid to get in the pool because he top, like, because he got man boobs. I was like, man, he can't be the only other person. And I was like, well, shit, like, this is just flesh. People have said worse things to me. I didn't say it worse or things to myself. Like, what's a picture with me topless? And then I took it. And then I was nervous. I was scared, scared as hell to put it up there. But I put it up there. And Wait, got- did you take like four or five of them to try to yeah. find the best angle? Yeah. <laughs> I put the timer on, man. I put the timer on. And I was just getting flicks, man. I was just getting flicks with like poses and everything, man. I'm gonna get, And next thing you know, I got this camera roll full of topless photos. I'm like, all right, like which one of these I'm going to post? Tap up a caption on Instagram and like hesitate, like, oh, should I do this? I was like, fuck it. And I did it. And I just put my phone down and walked away. And that was the start. That was the start of just me being like, all right, fellas, we have to get past this. What women have done for body positivity and body acceptance is amazing. Like, it's dope. They've gotten stores like Target and shit to like, carry plus size clothing inside their stores. But when it comes to men, we're still a silent population in this. And there's a lot of men who still struggle with body image. And me doing that, I didn't know it was going to be a conduit for me like doing other things, but it became that thing to start that conversation to, to say like men too struggle with body image and it's okay. We too struggle with body image and like we don't have the necessarily the best conversations about our bodies as well. And like something needs to be done about it and we can celebrate what we look like, or we can celebrate what our body does. Hmm. And I I just choose to celebrate what my body do. That became a gate rate drug to me to take random shirtless pics. I got a pic where I pose new with like all my race medals on and things of that sort. Like I can do fun things like that. And cause an uproar or a conversation to be had. I love it, man. And I think that's a great place to end, but I do want to reflect back because you had so many moments where like (laughs) you say public humiliation, right? But we can look at it at kind of at a surface level as, yeah, you know, you were humiliated, but we could also look at these moments as these were angels that were kind of brought into your life to help steer you in this direction to become this really inspiring person. I mean, I, I, can, I don't think you would be the person you are today if you hadn't gone through D calling you, you know, titty boy and the doctor with the guttural laugh and the people who questioned you and teased you and your mom and pushing back on you. It's helped to refine and shape you into someone who can take the shirt off and do a full new photo shoot. <laughs> I mean, imagine if somebody came up to you in, in men's warehouse and said, you know, Martinez, one day you're going to run dozens of marathons. You are going to start a community with thousands of, what do you call them again in your community? Gold crushers. (laughs) And you're going to do a full nude photo shoot with the body you have right now. And you are going to compete in the world champion of public speaking. I mean, what would you have thought if someone came into men's warehouse and told you all that? Would you, would you believe them? I would say that man tricked me. He tripped, but it's one of the things now. It's just my main goal now 
is to put this body and put myself in places where people wouldn't expect me to see. So whether that's at a starting line of a marathon, whether that's me taking a new photo shoot with my running medals, you know, I have goals and aspirations of doing a triathlon, rock climbing. I want to jump out of plane. I want to do all these things that you wouldn't necessarily see a body of my stature to be at just to say that this shit can be done. I love that. And I just want to acknowledge you for continuing to get back on your path and to keep showing up. And I want to thank you really for coming on to this podcast and being so transparent and vulnerable. I have a feeling that's how you are all the time anyway, but you know, for people who have shared their story so many times to be able to share it again, like you're sharing it for the first time is really appreciated. So I just want to thank you for that. And I hope to one day be able to cross paths with you, man, and dap you up and hug you and and uh, spend a little time with you in person. Thank you. Likewise, man. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Martinez Evans. To get more information about Martinez, I suggest following him on social media. His Instagram handle is at 300 pounds and running. And that's the number 300, 300 pounds and running. And that's also the name of his podcast. And if you're interested in joining his online community, you can get more information about that at slowafrunclub.com. And of course, we'll put everything in the show notes as well, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you'll see that my recent book, Knowing Where to Look, is available in all versions, including audio, which is read by yours truly and comes with bonus commentary. You can also get information about my Happiness Insiders community, which is where you'll find the 108-day meditation challenge. And I'm pretty certain that being a part of that community will change your life from the inside out. So if you're ready to take your inner work to the next level, go to thehappinessinsiders.com to get more information and to start your free trial. Finally, if you can subscribe and leave a rating or review for this podcast, that would be the best way to help me share these conversations. It only takes 10 seconds to rate it. All you do is look at your screen right now, click the name of the podcast in the Apple Podcast app, scroll down past the previous episodes, you'll see five blank stars, and just click the star all the way to the right and you've left a rating. So thank you in advance for that. Make sure you're subscribed so you get notified about the next story from the end of the tunnel, which we release every Wednesday. And until then, as always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free 
and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.